just outstretch your hands if you're comfortable. Let's just pray together. Lord Jesus, when we sing these worship songs, we sing them to you, but we don't just want them to be empty lyrics. Lord, when we sing these songs, we want to sing them as a declaration over our lives, over our church, our families, our friends, and our workplaces. Those words are so poignant that we need to move in our world at the moment, in our country, some of our families, our friendships, physically, financially, relationally. Father God, we want to see a move. We want to see a move, Lord Jesus. And as we move on with the rest of our service and we dive together, Lord, into your word, we just pray that anything that is said from the platform by me, we pray, God, that it is anointed by you. Anything that isn't of you, Father, we pray just falls away right now. We want to bring glory and honour and power and praise and majesty right to the throne of God to worship you for all you are and all you have done, Father. And with this, we say together in one accord, Amen. Amen. Why don't you turn, say hello to someone next to you if you don't know who they are. Give them a high five if you're comfortable with it. If you're still COVID restricting, that is absolutely fine. You can just smile and wave. Why don't we give it up for our amazing worship team as well? Come on, you can give it up for them, leading us so powerfully this morning. Well, as Ryan said, this is a home from home for me. Some of you I know really well. Others of you, as I've looked around, I've never seen you before, and that's okay. And it is cool just to say, uh, my name is Mike, and I am the lead pastor at a church in Luton called Luton Christian Fellowship. But a part of my heart is still right here at Ely Northampton, because for eight years, oh, thank you very much, Janelle and Debbie, it's lovely. For eight years, I uh, cut my teeth in ministry. I served alongside some amazing pastors, some not so great as well, but Jason and Linda are away, so that's okay, we can say that. I'm joking, I'm joking. Jason and Linda, if you don't know, are actually my in-laws, so I'm from a family of pastors. You saw my wife last week, who is also a pastor, so it's nice actually to get out to a different church and see different pastors and different people. So uh, thank you so much for having me. And I'm just so blessed to be here. I'm going to be speaking right into your Acts campaign this week. And actually, the message I want to bring, I first preached from these scriptures about six years ago in Northampton. But I've grown up a bit since then. I've matured a little bit. And actually, I've seen so much in the account that I want to bring to you today that I believe really can revolutionise our lives. And before you worry, I'm not going into any sort of prosperity gospel or anything like that. But I believe when we open the pages of Scripture, it is so, so important we pay attention to what is happening. Because although it was written over 3,500 years ago, the Old Testament into the New Testament, I believe there is so much we can learn. It was once said that the Bible, the Scriptures, are the only book that ever reads you back. Hebrews 4 says that the Bible is alive and it is active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword that cuts between bone and marrow. If you believe that, why don't you say Amen. Amen. So I'm so excited I can be in the room with you. And I know we've got our online audience joining as well, our congregation. It is not a second seat or a second option to be at home watching. We're so glad. I don't know which camera I'm looking at, but it's so glad that I can be with you as well. So we're going to be turning together to Acts chapter 9. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there with me. But if not, I'm going to read it for you. And what I want to do, I want to look at two men, two men. And the first man is a man called Saul. He is called Saul. Now, before we jump right into the scriptures in Acts 9, let me give you a little background of who Saul is. Now, Saul was a very, very intelligent man. He was probably, he was one of those kids, you know, at school, at college, at university, he was the top of the class. And if he wasn't at the top of the class, he was in those upper escalons of intelligence, okay? And he was just a boffin in all senses of the word. And Saul was so, so clever, he was picked out of his school to be trained as what we would call a Pharisee. You see this in scripture. 
A Pharisee is really just another word for a preacher or a reverend or a vicar, just like me. Now, I know to a 21st century ear, when you say reverend or vicar, it doesn't seem like the best job in the world, okay? It's not like some sort of London stockbroker. It's not like a business mogul. But what you need to understand is back when Saul was alive, to be a vicar, to be a reverend, to be a Pharisee was literally the best thing you could ever do. Because this was before football. There was no Lionel Messi, no Cristiano Ronaldo, no transfer rumours of Ronaldo coming from Inter over to Man United. There was no uh, business moguls or anything like that. To be a Pharisee would literally like being the winner of Love Island, okay? You were that well known. And Saul was picked as a Pharisee and he was trained. And he wasn't just trained as a Pharisee, he was trained under a leader called Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the top Pharisee in the whole of the country. And of course, Saul, growing up in school, always having the best of the best, the cleverest of the cleverest, he started to get a little bit of an edge to him. He wasn't very humble. He was proud and he was hot-headed. And as we piece together some of the detective work in Scripture, we could see all these things happening in Saul's life. He, he, he was self-righteous and he was upper class. Uh, of course, there was good things because there was prominence there and highly intelligent. But there was also this jealousness and this zealousness. And of course, when Saul was breaking onto this really fashionable religious stage at the time... There was this whole sect in his religion, the Jewish religion, called the Christians that were known then as the way. And these Christians are like the weirdos of the church, okay? A bit like how a lot of people look at the Pentecostals today. We're a Pentecostal church, you know that. They were like the weird sort of sect in the corner over here. And they worshipped this man who was a carpenter, who became a rabbi, never had any sort of formal training, and they followed this man called Jesus. Now, the difference with Jesus is he didn't just preach and teach. You see, when Jesus preached and teach, things happened. And in fact, these followers of Jesus who were breaking out around Saul on this religious stage were saying that Jesus was the Son of God himself. And not only were they saying Jesus was the Son of God himself, when they preached and they teach, and these were tax collectors, fishermen, prostitutes, they weren't just teaching and preaching scripture, they were seeing miracles happen as well. Now, I don't know if you were like me, and maybe you've had a situation like this in your own life where you have worked really, really hard, you've put in the hours, you've done the practice. Maybe it's cost you thousands in finance to get a degree, and you've, you've pushed, and you, you've become a manager, and it's taking you sweat, gut, and tears, and then someone comes out of nowhere and leapfrogs you. Ever had that happen, anyone? It's in church, you can be honest, yeah, a few of you. And this is exactly what's happening with Saul. And, and Saul was really disappointed with this because he was supposed to be the man who was leading the Jewish people. He was supposed to be the man who was getting the crowds. He was supposed to be the man writing the best-selling theological books and getting the sales. But actually, it was fishermen and prostitutes and down and outs. And Saul's disappointment soon turned to disillusionment, and his disillusionment turned actually into extremism. And it's really, really interesting, church, and maybe you've had this in your own life, and maybe you've seen it happen with others. When people get disappointed and it turns into disillusionment, it gets really, really dangerous. Because when you start to move away from reality, you start to see things in a completely different way. And a lot of the religious extremism in our world today, uh, of all different faiths, when people just go off on an absolute weird bender, is often because they're disappointed with something, and it's turned into disillusionment. And this is exactly what happens with Saul. And as we go to Acts 9, this is where we find Saul, and this is how we find the situation, that the Christians are being prominent, the Christians are getting the crowds, the Christians are getting the box office sales, and Saul is looking dejected and rejected after years and years of work. And we find the story, as I said, in Acts 9, verses 1 to 9. Let me read it to you. 
So meanwhile, while all this was happening, Saul was still breathing out, look at this word, murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's the Christians. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to this way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul is baffled. He says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you were persecuting, the voice replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And then the other men travelling with stools stood there and they were speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anything. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, if you've been in or around church for a while, you would have heard the term the Damascus Road experience. And when people say that, they are referring to this story here because what happened to Saul in this moment, we'll find out later if you don't know the story, changed his life forever. And when we often talk about the Damascus Road experience in our churches, we have men and women stand up in our church and say, you know, I was a retrobate, I was a drug dealer, I was an international criminal and head of a mafia syndication here, and, and I had a moment with the Lord, it was like a Damascus Road experience, and instantly I was saved and I was changed, and everything was, was good from then on, I became a Christian. And oftentimes I, I get a little bit worried about those stories, because we make it sound like... Uh, the exciting stuff happened before the Damascus Road, and then afterwards I became Christian and everything went magnolia. Do you know the stories that happened like that? But what I find really, really interesting about Saul is Saul wasn't some sort of head of a mafia. He wasn't some sort of international drug lord. Saul thought he knew God really, really well. In fact, Saul probably would have said, nobody knows God better than me. And this made me think as I was reading this account, and I felt a check in my own spirit because I think I know a lot about God. But the question that I felt drop in my spirit is, how much do I really know God? You see, Saul knew absolutely loads about God. He knew about tradition. He knew about theology. He knew the chapter and verses of his favorite Bible references. But he actually didn't know God at all. You see, all the things were kicking off with the Christians who had no formal training. As I said, prostitutes, fishermen, criminals, tax collectors. They had a radical experience with Jesus. And the learning came after And actually, as we sit in this 21st century Western country, and I know we've got people from all nations in Ely Northampton, we, I think, have been brought up and we've been cultured here in the West to prize information above everything else. Absolutely everything else. That's why exams are so important. That's why coursework is so important. And that's why things like the arts, dance and poetry and music seem to always take a back seat to the information subject, like English literature and mathematics and the sciences. And actually, I think some of this tradition from the Western culture slipped into our churches because we are so precious about our traditions, about what we think we know. And oftentimes, we leave God out in the corridor. It's a really famous Bible verse in Revelation 3.20 that we always quote for new salvations, people coming to know God. And it goes like this. It's Jesus standing at a door. And it says, I stand at the door and knock, waiting for you to invite me in to come and eat with you. The metaphor being, I stand at the door of your heart and I'm waiting to come in. And we always use that for people who we think are far away from God. But actually, that verse was originally written to the churches. I think we need to remember that. Because I think for a lot of us in our churches and in our own devotional lives, Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. But we think we know it all. 
We know the worship songs. We know when to stand up. We know it's going to kick off in the bridge. So if we sat down in the worship song, we stand up and we get our hands ready when Erica's about to hit an amazing note. But actually, what Jesus was doing in this moment in coming to the Damascus Road and blinding Paul, he's saying you don't know anything at all. You think you know it all. You think you know it's all. You think you've got it all down. You think you've got a perfect life, but actually you're so misguided. And as I said, as a pastor, I felt that challenge on my own spirit because I can get so wound down with rotors and programs and the next big service we're doing, the next uh, amazing outreach we're going to do, and actually sometimes I leave Jesus at the door knocking. And I just felt that was a word for some of us today. How much is Jesus allowed in our life? What really surprised me about the instance we saw is when Jesus came to him, he had this amazing encounter and instantly everything is stripped from Paul, the pride, the arrogance. How do we know that? Because he doesn't know who's blinded him, but he calls him Lord. He sees that this person who has blinded him, who has appeared to him, is superior to him. And I think as he's, as he's sat there on the floor, or he's laid down, whether it's minutes, seconds, hours, I don't know how long it was, what is really interesting for me is that although Saul was blinded physically, he seemed to have his eyes open spiritually. Now you see... When people come to Jesus in the Gospels, they always, bar one account I can see, the account of the rich and ruler, every other account I see of people coming to Jesus, they always leave better off than they were before. Bar from that one encounter with the rich young ruler where Jesus said, this is what you've got to do, and he couldn't do it. But blind people go to Jesus, and they leave seeing. Deaf people go to Jesus, and they leave hearing. Jesus goes to dead people, and they leave with them living. Jesus always turns things around, but in this instance, it's like the antithesis of the Gospels because Paul goes seeing and he gets up blind. But as I said, the light that externally blinded him, I believe, had the exact opposite effect inside of him. You see, Paul, who was proud and he was zealous and he was murderous and he was hateful, he had a revelation. There was a moment, however long he was on the floor, where I think there was some introspection, there was submission, there was obedience, there was a humility that Saul hadn't had before. And instantly, as he's lay there or sat there scrabbling around in the dust, something is birthed within him. Now, what I think is really interesting, again, in the, in the West, we are a part of the Amazon Prime culture. We know in Northampton, if you want a McDonald's, whatever time of the night it is, you can get in your car, go to Six Fields, drive up to a window and have a Big Mac. Not usually a McFlurry, because the McFlurry machine is always broken at six fields. For some reason, I've no idea why. But you can have anything at any time. If you want a book, you can get it tomorrow. If you want to download a film, even films that are playing in the cinema now, because of COVID, you can pay a couple of quid and get it instantly. And again, this mindset has shifted into our churches. And what Saul teaches us in these moments is he encounters Jesus. And what we taught again and again and again through Scripture is that the Christian life is a life of process. And we are absolutely allergic to this word in the West, particularly in the UK and the States, this word of process. Because when we have an encounter with Jesus, we want that encounter to sustain us forever. We think if we meet Jesus, it is absolutely the best decision we can make in our lives, hands down, no doubt, but that one encounter cannot sustain you forever. Let me put it like this. The moment of salvation happens in an instant, okay? happens in a moment. When you pray the prayer of salvation, I believe that is it. You have come into relationship with Jesus. Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is risen, then you will be saved. It happens in a moment. But salvation is also built in movement. 
Jesus has a conversation with a man in John chapter 3 called Nicodemus. And he uses this phrase that we have coined in the church today. And he says to this man Nicodemus, we'll call him Nick. Nicodemus, you need to be born of spirit. You need to be born again. Has anyone ever heard that term? You need to be born again. I would say I'm born again. And you know what's true with birth physically is absolutely true with birth spiritually. And Saul, with all his information and all his knowledge, I believe in that moment, submitting to Jesus, was born again spiritually. But just like when you go into the labour ward at Northampton General Hospital, it would be very, very weird if your school children came out of the womb wearing a school uniform, okay, with a briefcase and homework. They don't come out like that. They don't come out with Northampton School for Boys uniforms. They don't come out with their GCSE results. They come out dirty and wailing and screaming. I've had three children. It's not pretty when things are born. And sometimes that's the way in the spirit as well. But we expect to walk out fully formed as an apostle, completely getting it all together. And it's easy to find this in scripture as well because in the case of just a page, turn over a page, we see that happens instantly. We see Saul is here and then instantly he's doing all these amazing things. You know, sometimes even between chapters in the Bible, there's years absolutely years. Moses was in the desert, wasn't he? He got kicked out of Egypt, he ran away, murdered someone, and there's one verse that says Moses was in the desert. How long was that one verse? 40 years. And in this instantaneous generation, we need to remember, church, that it is okay not to have it all together. And as I was preparing this message last night, I just felt this in my spirit to say that someone maybe thinks in this room or online that, you know, I've given my life to Jesus, I've given up everything, but I still haven't got it all together. Let me tell you, that is okay. I lead a church and I haven't got it all together. What I'm really, really good at doing is faking it till I make it. Sometimes, if I can be honest with you, and it stays in this room, I've just had a blazing row with my wife and my kids getting to church And then I've got to stand up and preach the gospel of Jesus. All butterflies and rainbows and everything's good and everything's perfect. And Becky's sitting there giving me the eyes and every husband in this room knows what the eyes are. (laughs) So come on church, we're going to get into the presence of God together. And Becky's smirking at me. I'm thinking, don't look at me. Don't look at me. It is okay church to not have it all together. Have permission from me. You see, Saul was left blind and for three days he was absolutely blind. Why didn't Jesus just come, do the amazing blindness stuff for a minute and then say, got you, got your sword, come on, let's get up, let's carry on, let's crack on? Because I think sometimes in the darkest moments of our lives, something is being changed within us that we don't realise at the time. Oftentimes when I look back at my Christian walk and my faith journey, it is the most darkest and difficult times. One time, some of you will know that I had to leave Bible college Trained to be a pastor, I had to leave Bible college under a cloud, and it was the most formational, transformational time of my life. Absolutely, majestically good. And I know some of you are facing medical diagnoses and financial issues and marriage breakdowns and relational breakdowns, and some of you hate your boss and some of you hate your colleagues, and you're just trying to be Christian and you feel like you haven't got it together. Where are you, Lord? Let me tell you, it is part of the process. Look at this. Peter right into the church. He says, like newborn babies, you've got to crave that spiritual milk. It's coming to a place of desperation where you're hungry to see God move so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Salvation happens in a moment, but it's built in movement. Say that again. Happens in a moment, but it is built in movement. Let's learn, church, to trust his process. I'm giving you permission today to trust 
the process. And this is exactly where we find Saul. He's absolutely blinded, eating dust. He's picked up by his followers who don't have a dicky bird what's going on. They're leading him away into Damascus and Saul is sat there for what I think is the longest three days of his life that far. He doesn't eat, the Bible tells us. He's hungry, he's thirsty, he is in a place of turmoil. But let me tell you, the light that blinded him externally woke something up within him internally. And that is true for all of us. Let's go back to the story. Acts 9, verse 10. And we meet our second character I want to look at really quickly today. So for three days, verse 9, Saul was blind and did not eat or drink anything. He's in a place of turmoil. Stomachs tied in knots, completely oblivious to what's happening around him. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, he said. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of a man called Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Again, sometimes it's in our darkest times, we pick up the prayer book, we get down on our knees. When everything's good and dandy, we don't bother doing, but in our darkest times, we begin to pray. And Saul, I think, is praying like he's never prayed before. And in a vision, the Lord said to Ananias, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Verse 17. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now again, we need to understand what is happening here with Saul and Ananias. And goodness me, I wish sometimes that God spoke to me like he spoke to Ananias. I believe for me personally, God speaks to me primarily through Scripture. But I would just love to have this relationship where I could audibly hear the voice of God and have these visions. And the Lord said to Ananias, look, Ananias, I've got a job for you. And Ananias straight away says, yes, Lord, I'm listening. And do you know what? Oftentimes when we say, yes, Lord, I'm listening, and yes, Lord, here, I'm here, send me, we regret it really soon afterwards. Have you ever done that? You really regret it because God will often do things and ask things of us that will stretch us. You see, what need to understand about Saul to the Christians at the time, we see this horrific situation happening at the moment in Afghanistan with the Taliban, and now ISIS are bombing and all sorts of things happening, okay? Christians are running for their lives. It's about a 2,000-strong church at the meeting in Afghanistan, who are hiding underground, petrified, because if they're found, they're going to be killed. Well, to Ananias, Ananias' family, his friends, the church in Damascus, Saul was literally the equivalent of an ISIS terrorist. Literally. Can you imagine God asking you to go and pray for someone, to lay hands on someone, to heal someone, who has literally just been persecuting your family, your friends? Just a few chapters before, we were introduced to the first Christian martyr who was murdered for his faith a man called Stephen. And Saul is there egging on the murderers. He's holding their coats. He's saying, give it him. Stone him, kick him, punch him. This is the man that Ananias is being sent to by God. Can you imagine that? And as I'm reading Ananias' response, he's really, really clever, Ananias. He does what a lot of us do. He doesn't outright sound no to God. He tries to help God understand what he's asking. 
And many of us, I think, in our intellectual age, in this information-saturated 21st century, we've got the GCSEs, the A-levels, the degrees. Sometimes we think we need to help God understand what he's asking of us. Because we think we know better, because we know ourselves, we know our situation, we know what we're capable of. Let me tell you, church, let's not kid ourselves. And I've done it myself. I've said to other people, no, God can absolutely do it through you. We quote that famous verse, Ephesians 3.20, he can do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. But then when God asks me to do something, oh no, God, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking, Lord. God absolutely knows. God absolutely knows what he's asking of you. Each and every one of us, without a shadow of a doubt, every single one of you, whether you think you're good or bad or ugly or good-looking or gifted or not, he has called and appointed you to service in the kingdom of God. See this all through scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, we're a body, some of us are fingers, toes, shoulders. I brought one of my friends with me, Luke, here, Luke's an armpit. No, I'm joking, okay. <laughs> We've got, we're all a part of the body of Christ. Each of us is called and appointed to do something in the kingdom of God. So often we can't see it in our own lives, but the people around us will call out things that we need to do or can do. Let me tell you, church, you are gifted and appointed, and when God calls you to something, he will bring you through it. And he calls Ananias to do this, and Ananias goes begrudgingly, tries to talk himself out of it. But I love what the scripture says. It says, go. And I don't know if this is in every translation, but in the New International Version, it is go, exclamation mark. It's not even a full stop. God is shouting, go, do as you're told. Ananias trapes out, and I can imagine all the thoughts and feelings running through his head, and he gets to Judy's house on Straight Street, knocks on the door, finds Saul, and he lays his hands upon him. And look at the word that he says to Saul as he begins to pray through him. Brother, brother. And I bet in that moment, Saul learned something that he hadn't learned in 18, 20, 25 years of schooling. He learned what Christianity was all about. It was about grace and compassion and mercy. Because the person that Saul wanted to kill a minute ago is now releasing him from his burden. Look what happens. Acts 19, 18, uh, Acts 9, 18 to 19. Immediately... Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. We don't know if this was spiritual or physical. And he could see again. He got up and was baptised. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. What Saul was trying to do in his own strength, praying to God for three days, immediately broke off him when someone in obedience to God's call went and did what he was told to do. I want to take you back about seven or eight years now. And I want you to uh, imagine me far more fresh-faced, little bit skinnier, much better hairline, much better looking. I was tanned because I was about to get married. I'm not ashamed to say I went on a sunbed because I wanted to look good on my wedding pictures. I'd met, gone out with, got engaged to a girl called Becky Heron, okay, Jason and Linda's daughter, if you don't know the pastor of this church. And um, I was on my way to become a pastor in Birmingham. I'd been offered a place at, um, at my church, my home church, an Elim church, just like this one. And uh, I was all start, set to start my, uh, my ordination training, what we call ministry training, a three, four-year process in Birmingham. And at the same time, Becky was leading the kids' work at Ely Northampton, and Jason didn't want to lose his kids' worker, so he offered me a job. Now, it wasn't because I was any good. He, he just didn't want to lose his kids' worker, okay? So he talked around Graham and the elders at the time, and he said, look, we'll interview Mike, but we really want to keep Becky, so make sure we, we employ him. And, um, and I really wanted to go to Birmingham, so we sat in this interview, and um, I think I did okay. I'll have to ask the, ask the elders afterwards how that went, about eight, nine years ago now, ten years ago now. And, um, and I got offered the job, so I really wanted to go to Birmingham. I sat down with Becky, my fiancé, we were going to get married, and we compromised and we talked. 
And, and we came to a, a mutual decision. We compromised and we moved to Northampton. Of course, you've got to do that when you're married, gentlemen. You, you know who's the boss, really, don't you? Moved to Northampton. And again, I was getting married in just four weeks after moving to Northampton. I joined a gym. Now, Jesus in Luke 18, no, Luke 10, verse 18, he talks about seeing Satan falling like lightning. Okay? We know right at the beginning of time that there was a rebellion in heaven and this evil angel called Lucifer or Satan, he was cast down to heaven. Now, I have it on good authority and I'm 99% sure where Satan fell. And it is this place, Seoul Central Car Park. Okay. If you're a Northamptonian, you will know Seoul Central Car Park. It seems to be designed for Smurfs and smart cars. Uh, I didn't know anything about Seoul Central other than my gym was in it. I found my way in this car park. And uh, I, I had my driving license at the time, but living in Birmingham, transport links were so good, I didn't have a car. Um, I'm not saying it was a reason I got engaged to Becky, but it was a big factor of it. She did have a car. And, you know, getting married, uh, it was going to be our car. So I got in my car, I got in my new accommodation. Becky obviously was still living at home, and I drove into Seoul Central Car Park. And it was tight. I mean, just getting into it, absolute nightmare. And um, I was really, really proud, without parking sensors, ladies and gentlemen, because we weren't that rich at the time, 2012, 2013, I reverse parked into this uh, space, which was really, really tight, next to a pillar. These pillars, these demonic pillars, are everywhere in Seoul Central. I don't know what sort of malevolent, sadistic person designed this car park, but anyway, I did my gym workout, and I uh, came out, got into the car. It was a Renault Scenic. We were planning for the future. We we're going to have kids in the future, Okay. And uh, I got to my car and I looked at it and I was absolutely devastated to see that right next to me was a brand new, this was 2013, it was a brand new 63-plate Range Rover Sport, okay? So my car's, well, our car was worth about £12. This one was worth about £112,000. So I'm looking at the situation, I can see the pillar one side, the Range Rover the other, and um, I get in the car and I begin to edge out. I'm going forward, okay? So I've reverse parked in. I'm going forward, and I begin to edge out. But do you know when you're so tightly stuck, you can't turn your wheel because you're scared of bumping into something? So as I was edging out in first gear, I heard this sound. It wasn't a sound from heaven. It wasn't Bethel or anything playing on the radio. It was a sound. And what made matters worse, it always seems to happen when something like this is happening or going wrong. There's a whole group of people who just come out of a gym class, and they stopped right in front of my car, and I look to the left, I've got the, 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 the Range Rover here right next to me on my driver's side. On the other side, I've got this pillar. But the, it looks like I've got a good gap between the pillar. And I'm looking and I can't see anything. And I, I start to go forward again and the sound gets louder. And I thought, well, I can't reverse. There's a car behind me. There's a car to the side of me. I'm just going to have to put my foot down and get out. And the sound that ricocheted around this car park, of course, there's the echo. And I could see the people doing this in front of me. Uh, and I'm not telling you a lie, I didn't dent the car, I ripped the whole side of the car off. And bearing in mind, I've only just moved to Northampton, this is a, probably the second or third time I've driven this car. Jason didn't speak to me before I was engaged to Becky. I used to go around the house and he'd go and sit upstairs in his bedroom. So I've only just got on good terms with Jason and I've just wrecked his daughter's car. You see, when I pulled out and I parked bang in the middle of this driveway, I, I, I looked and what I didn't see sat in the driver's seat, was this horrendous, if you can come up on the screen, this horrendous yellow grill. Again, I don't know what sadistic, malevolent, sick person designed this car park. They made it bright yellow, but it was absolutely out of my line of vision. It was in my blind spot. Absolutely missed it. 
And the spiritual application for us today, and, and thankfully Jason did talk to me again, and he got my car fixed, and I've never done it again. Whenever I go to Seoul Central now, or when I was in Northampton, I get Luke to take me in his car, he's a far better driver. But here's what I felt the Spirit of God say to me, just in this stupid, silly, very expensive incident. See, some of the delays in God's purposes for our lives are because we've got no one to cover our blind spots. Absolutely no one there. If Becky was sat in the passenger seat, if I'd done the session with Luke or Mark or someone else or Graham or whoever I've done the session with, they would have sat in the passenger seat and seen something that was completely outside my line of vision. And we see in the news today, don't we, particularly the Christian news, time and time again, we see men and women fall. Godly men and women who've seen thousands, tens of thousands of people come to salvation. They make a stupid mistake. And these people who we've followed and we've looked up to and, uh, and we've praised, instantly their platform is gone, their ministry is gone because they had no one cover their blind spots. And what you may not know about Saul is Saul later changed his name and became the Apostle Paul. He's the man who wrote over a third of the New Testament. And as we read Paul's account and we piece together what we can from Scripture, reading through the whole book of Acts, we see that Paul is never doing his ministry alone. He's always in the spotlight. We put him in the spotlight today. But actually, some of Paul's most important people were in the twilight. And let's not get it twisted, church, that the important people are those in the spotlight, the preachers, the teachers, the theologians, the business moguls, there's people all around them who are holding them up, just like Moses, who had Aaron and her are holding his hands up. Some of our ministry isn't just to be in the spotlight and preach and teach. Some of our ministry is to release those people from uh, the, the twilight. Uh, and it just hit me that without an obedient Ananias, there'd be no apostle Paul. Can you imagine if Ananias had refused God's call to go and put his hand on Saul's head? And I wonder if, Phil, you could come back and make me sound a little bit holier. It's a done thing, isn't it, in church? We know that the Holy Spirit doesn't come into the main auditorium until the keys are played. But without an obedient Ananias, there is no Apostle Paul. And in this world at the moment, this COVID coronavirus slog world where everything is just effort and, and we've had nearly 18, 19, 20 months now of not having to get up and go to church every week, we can do it in our box of shorts with a bowl of cereal from our couch, still get the word, still get the worship. I want to tell you, church, that where online is absolutely fine, do not live in isolation. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, some of my favourite verses, it says, encourage each other to good works and do not neglect meeting with each other like some are in the practice of doing it. Why? Why not neglect meeting to each other? Is it because we want to keep our church attendance up? We want to be the biggest church in Northampton or in Luton or in London or in Cape Town? No. The purpose of meeting to, together with each other is to encourage each other to good works. Ananias had this phenomenal ministry. We don't hear anything about him. There's another Ananias in Scripture we hear about all the time who lied and he got struck down dead. We hear more about that Ananias and this Ananias uh, who absolutely released what I think was the Christian worldview of today. Without Ananias, there's no Apostle Paul. Without the Apostle Paul, there's no Book of Romans, Corinthians. There's no Colossians. There's no Philippians, no Timothy, no Titus. Can you imagine trying to preach without all these books in the New Testament that Paul had written? Why was he able to write them? Because Ananias was obedient and he went and laid his hands on his head. And honestly, if I was laying my hands on Saul's head, I probably would have given him a slap first before praying for him. He was an unintentional teacher. He taught him so much in those instances and in those moments as he just prayed and laid compassion upon him. 
But I wonder, church, in our lives, who is our Ananias? And more than that, who are we our Ananias to? Who in our family, our friendship groups, our work situations, our schools, our colleges, who are we looking at and uplifting and releasing? Who can we see the hand of God on that we can release and breathe life into and take blind spots away from to help them propel them into the ministry of the Holy Spirit? I wonder if we can stand as we together in the building and as I wrap up, I've got 14 seconds left on my time. I want to ask you these three things to consider them. You might be feeling right down in the pits today, absolutely gutted, devastated. Maybe your boyfriend or your girlfriend just split up with you. Maybe you're in the room, maybe you're watching online. Maybe your bank balance has come in again and you're overdrawn and everything you were doing, you were tidying, you were doing everything right and you were just feeling like nothing is going right. One word, process. Process. Jesus didn't say that when you come to me, everything will be fine and dandy. Let me tell you, in some of these darkest moments, you are being formed and shaped and reformed and reshaped into the person, the, the man, the woman, the child that Jesus is calling you to be. You have a purpose. You are ordained to serve in the kingdom of God. And some of what's happening now in your darkest times are actually causing those things to break inside of you just like salt. Whether it's pride, maybe you've got a temper, maybe you're hot-headed. But in this moment, that just feels dark and blind and cold and irritating. God is saying, I'm just going to tweak that. You see, God comes to cut things away like a surgeon. He's not an axe murderer, but he does cut. Because God, Hebrews tells us, 12 verse 6, disciplines those he loves. And so often we can see God's discipline as condemnation, but that isn't true. Romans 8.1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God never condemns, but he does correct. See, discipline is about correction, not condemnation. And correction hurts. If you're a runner, if you're a cycler, if you go to the gym, bench pressing more than your body weight hurts. But what it does, it breaks down to build up. And God does that in our lives, in our spirit, in our being. He breaks things off us to correct, to tweak, and to make better. Number two, as I said, who is your Ananias? Who can you go home to today? Pick up the phone. I've got three, four men in my life. Pastor Stuart Blount, Pastor Jason Heron, my dad, sort of. He has his moments. And my granddad. But these four men absolutely shaped my call to ministry. They shaped me. They molded me. They released me into where I, I serve today in Luton Christian Fellowship. Without those four men, I never would have got there. Absolutely not. Who is your Ananias? And let me tell you, church, don't neglect this today. Go home, send them a text, send them a phone call. Maybe you haven't spoke to them for a while. Say, you know what? You did this for me that caused X, Y, and Z blessing in my life. And lastly, number three, who can you be Ananias to? And that doesn't mean they're younger than you. It might be a teacher. It might be someone older, older than you. But who can you call out something within that they can't see themselves? Who can you sit in the passenger seat of the car to and make sure they're not ripping the side of the car off? Because without Ananias too, in our purposes and callings that God has put in our lives, we'll never get out of the car park. We'll just keep scraping and hitting and crashing. We need someone who we give permission to firstly and then we allow to speak honestly into our lives and will help us get to where we need to get. We're going to hand over to the worship team now and then Pastor Ryan's going to come and uh, pray for us and close our meeting. Thank you, team.